Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. The role of women, particularly indigenous women, during the legendary fur trade in Minnesota is often overlooked. In today's episode, KFAI contributor Joe Fredericks travels to Grand Portage and the Boundary Waters to explore the history of women fur trappers through the lens of one Grand Marais woman, Laura Powell Markson. In the pale light of an unfinished basement, Laura Powell Markson surveys a desktop of rabbit, beaver, bobcats, and other furs that are spread across a cluttered desktop. Laura surveys the scene before carefully picking up a pair of half-finished mittens. She looks at the mittens and then slowly glances around the room, knowing this will be her next project. It's here, in this space, where animals trapped from the border lakes of Minnesota and Ontario transform into hats, moccasins, and other apparel. Everything that we create down here has a spirit. This piece, which will eventually be that hat, has a spirit by nature of the fact that this was an animal that died to keep someone warm. Laura has been trapping for most of her life. She grew up on a massive lake at the end of the Gunflint Trail. The lake, known as Saginaga, or Sag, to most people who are familiar with the area, is the largest and deepest lake in the Boundary Waters. Now 43, Laura lives in what she calls the City of Grand Marais. A small community on the edge of Lake Superior has a population of about 1,300 people. The house where she works sits on the hillside overlooking downtown. There's a direct view of the Grand Marais Harbor from her front porch. In the summer, she watches commercial fishermen head out to the vast expanse of Superior each morning. In the winter, she can hear ice forming in the harbor. And while her main floor offers a direct view of Lake Superior, Laura prefers to work in the dark confines of the home's basement. I feel very at home here in, I mean, this is very unfinished basement. I could go upstairs and work, but down here is just a proper fit. It's where I got started. Laura grew up some 60 miles from Grand Marais on the Canadian side of SAG. Trapping animals for their fur was a way of life for Laura and her family. The furs were sold at auctions across the United States and in Canada. In that sense, Laura's first job was not typical. She wasn't a server in a cafe. She wasn't a lifeguard at the local pool. Laura's first job was being a trapper in the North Woods. It was awesome. Um, I had a very unconventional life, and we did without some things. I mean, we didn't have running water. We didn't have electricity. Of course, no TVs. So it was a very um, hands-on. You know, I think I think I've been born 100 years too late. I don't, this world moves too fast for me. Laura and her twin sister Paula spent countless hours of their youth hunting, fishing, and trapping in northern Minnesota and across the border in Ontario. The skills she learned in the woods are generational, including from her great-grandmother, Mary Ottertail, an Ojibwe woman from the Lac LaCroix First Nation, and her great-grandfather, Jack Powell. Mary Ottertail, as the family stories go, taught her husband Jack everything there was to know about life in the North Woods. One thing she taught him was how to be a trapper, says Laura's father, 
Dickie Powell. They trapped and they, they lived basically off the land. And you know, it's just the way they, they done things. When you look at it, it was a, a very kind of a tough life in a way, but really it wasn't. What it was, Dick and Laura both explained, was a simple life. Generations removed from the peak of the fur trade, many of the principles that guided the era remain intact for Laura and Paula. The practice of trapping means direct connection to the land and animals of a particular place, Laura says. It means hard work, cold mornings, and an understanding of the value of life and death. For generations, this has been a way of life for people who call this region their home, including families who lived here during the legendary fur trade. In the most basic sense, what's commonly referred to as the fur trade was a period of cultural and economic exchange between Native Americans and European Americans, according to the Minnesota Historical Society. Native Americans traded along the waterways of the Boundary Waters and across the Great Lakes for centuries before the arrival of Europeans in the mid-1600s. For nearly 200 years afterward, European-American traders exchanged manufactured goods with Native people for valuable furs. As the pages of history were put down, one aspect that was continually overlooked is the role women played at home, in the woods, and throughout many aspects of life during the fur trade. The simple truth is that women actively contributed to the success of the North American fur trade, according to Carl Koster, a historian who specializes in the history of the fur trade. And here's this huge international company, right? We're selling furs at the Leipzig Fair in Germany. We got furs being sold in London. We're bringing in things to trade from Germany, France, Italy, Spain, South America, Africa, and Asia. So we have this huge multi-million dollar company here, the Northwest Company. Bunch of rich millionaire Montreal guys putting money in. So it's the oil companies, the auto industry of today this huge thing. Here it is in the 1780s and 1790s, and, and, and look at what they're doing to make this operate. What they are doing sometimes is they are going into native villages and they are asking permission to build trading posts. And these negotiations quite often involve women. We have a quote of hiring native women guides, literally hiring native women because they've traveled to visit family. They know where things are. The Europeans don't know where things are west of here. So we have to hire Native women to take a bunch of French Canadians and English and Scots, a bunch of Caucasian white guys, into the interior, show them where they're going. Coster has worked at the Grand Portage National Monument for more than two decades. The federally funded monument preserves the legacy of the fur trade activity and Ojibwe heritage. I visited the monument on a cold winter morning in February to talk with Coster. Waves were crashing on the shoreline of Lake Superior as I drove toward the Canadian border. Though many of the bays were frozen when I arrived in Grand Portage, including the large bay directly in front of the monument. 
Shortly after I arrived, I walked up a winding staircase to Coster's office. We spent time talking about the actual Grand Portage, which was a path that was part of the historic trade route of the French-Canadian voyageurs used between their wintering grounds and their trading grounds to the east, including at Lake Superior. Composed of the Pigeon River and all manner of streams, lakes, and portages, this route was of enormous importance during the fur trade. It provided quick water access from Canada's settled areas and what is now the Boundary Waters and Atlantic ports, Coster says. In terms of common knowledge, much of the fur trade lore focuses on sturdy voyageurs and bearded white men paddling canoes. However, there's much more to the era's history. Coster says that whether at forts or on the trade route or serving as guides for white trappers, women were active and essential participants in many fur trade operations. For example, native women often took on the role of a liaison between the French trappers and other tribes along the trade route. Payment was involved, and in many ways, the women held positions of authority over the white trappers, Coster says. I mean, here's this multi-million dollar company hiring native women, putting them in charge of white guys. Where do you see, this is, I'm not, this is 1790, where in 1890 do you find multi-million dollar companies hiring minority women and putting them in positions of power over white people? Where in 1990? Where in 1990, yeah, exactly, exactly. The area in what is now the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and Quetico Provincial Park was a main thoroughfare for trapping during the fur trade. In the way many motorists use Interstate 35 to travel from the Twin Cities to the Boundary Waters these days, on a much smaller scale, that was how popular the border lakes were for fur traders during the peak of the fur trade. And while many might think of bearded French voyageurs traveling to the interior in search of pelts, the role of indigenous women is paramount in the success of the fur trade, Coster says. From the eastern side of the Great Lakes to the land now commonly referred to as the Boundary Waters, Native women did everything from guiding to making snowshoes that would be used by trappers as they navigated the forests and frozen lakes each winter. Lee Johnson is a Superior National Forest archaeologist who works for the U.S. Forest Service. He says from about the 1690s to the 1890s, a span that embodies the peak of the fur trade in the Boundary Waters region, Native women were essential in what he describes as provisioning trade. So you had like the formal trade that went on, went on on all these big depots like Grand Portage and Rainy Lake and up into the you know Athabascan country. These depots were like formal trade occurred, but all along those canoe routes, there was provisioning trade that occurred as the canoe brigades were coming by. And that's, you know, that's what really kept the trade going was this provisioning trade for like products like wild rice and smoked whitefish and dried, you know, dried venison, dried moose. Um, even like the, the, the pitch, the gum for repairing canoes and the provisioning trade that occurred along the way, women were at the, you know, the, the forefront of that type of trade. Johnson says provisioning trade, largely orchestrated by Native women, was essential to keep trappers moving and their energy high during the fur trade that wild rice, that the fish, you know, the, the repair items to repair canoes, um, you know, from my reading and, and talking with elders and reading even into the 
you know, the ethnographic and ethno-historical accounts of um, Ojibwe folks like that was critical to to the fur trade and to early settlers here on the North Shore. In other words, Johnson says the role of Native women, both during the fur trade and during the early settlement of the North Shore near what is now Grand Marais, was crucial. It was this blending, this absolute blending of cultures and technology and and uh, knowledge and the trade good. It's just all assuming it's it's much more complex than than we would have believed from some of the the literature that we read early on. An embodiment of this blending of cultures was personified by numerous individuals throughout the generations, including John Linkletter, who lived in what is now the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness on Basswood Lake for many years. Linkletter is of Anishinaabeg, Cree, and Scottish ancestry. He worked as a guide, a trapper, and eventually as a state employee tracking other trappers who violated the law. Tim Cochran is a historian and author who lives near Grand Marais. He published a book in the winter of 2023 titled Making the Carry, the Lies of John and Cheekywis Linkletter. The book shares the story of Linkletter and his wife, Cheekywis, of the Lac LaCroix First Nation. The couple lived most of their adult life from about the 1870s until the 1930s on Basswood Lake. As Cochran explains, the Linkletters lived through the introduction of logging and mining in northern Minnesota. They witnessed firsthand the arrival of white people, first as waves of trappers along the border lakes, and then later when industry rolled in, forever changing the landscape. At this time, they lived through just about every kind of change imaginable. The first treaties, the first reservations, the first Indian agents the first miners, the first railroad people, and the Quetico, the first soldiers going through for the Dawson Trail, um, and then farms and the immigration largely in, the, in their part of close to Winton of mostly Finnish Americans, um, and the growth of these towns, um, all these things, that, that all happened in their lifetime. Cochran and I discussed the link letters one afternoon while walking near Lake Superior and Superior National uh, Forest. Yeah, or probably in this forest, you know. God, it's a nice day, isn't it? Yeah. It's probably the nicest day of the year. It is so far. Well, let's go over there. It was a cold but uh, no, sunny winter day in northeastern Minnesota, similar to many days that Cheekywis would have lived through on the edge of the boundary waters. Cochran says Chiquiwis was, in many ways, the embodiment of the indigenous women who lived in this part of the world, both before, during, and after the fur trade. John Linkletter, meanwhile, who also went by Jack, knew his way around Isle Royal, most of Superior National Forest, and what is now Quetico Provincial Park in Ontario. He worked as a trapper and fur dealer at various times in his life. Cochran says that Jack could navigate the local woods and waters, while Chikiwis was celebrated for her skill in beadwork and weaving. She made these remarkable moose calls that are made out of birch bark, and they have geometric figures, sometimes beaded, sometimes not. She was always tanning moose hides, and she would always be making moccasins and always giving away moccasins. She made these remarkable geometric mats that it, the largest one is um, about four and a half feet by eight feet and they're woven with the inner bark of white cedar and dyed. And um, 
They were once called an Ojibwe linoleum because they were used as the floor coverings when they were still in in uh, temporary wigwams and birch bark wigwams, and then they'd move so they could roll these babies up. That art died out in the 1920s, but she went on to sell these things to wealthy white people, and a lot of them persist today. Cochran points out that Chikiwis also had a connection to Laura Powell and her family from Saginaw Lake at the end of the Gunflint Trail. Chikiwis and Mary Ottertail, who was Laura Powell's great-grandmother, were first cousins. The current methods used to trap beaver, fisher, and other animals near Saginaw Lake were used by Mary Ottertail and the Linkletters for decades before Laura Powell ever laid eyes on the Boundary Waters. Lake Saginaw is a massive body of water at the end of the Gunflint Trail. It's a paved roadway that winds its way from Lake Superior along the edge of Minnesota's boundary waters. The end of the Gunflint is a remote place, with Grand Marais being the nearest town. Laura and Paula Powell's parents, Dick and Sherry, taught the twins how to survive in this beautiful but remote and often harsh landscape. Sherry came from Chicago and had to learn this for herself before the twins were born. Sherry left the city life because it was too busy and there was minimal connection to the natural world. Life at the end of the Gunflint Trail was the opposite of Chicago in many ways. There was hunting and fishing, long days working outside. It was all here. As was trapping. Running trap lines, Sherry says, was something she enjoyed, even though it wasn't easy. For me, it was an excuse to get out in the woods, and that's what I really wanted to do, was get out in the woods. But the more I learned, um, I I just didn't have the hand strength to set traps, so it was always him and I. And uh, especially like great big con bears, like the beaver traps, I've never been able to do that. I, could, I used to be able to set the little um, leg hold traps, but then they became you couldn't use them anymore and so I was I was kind of out of it you know but he we did that together. Laura says that people have told her throughout her life that her connection to trapping, furs, beading, and other practices comes from her ancestors including Mary Ottertail. Throughout her life Laura says that her parents were very supportive of her being a young trapper growing up in the woods of Minnesota and Ontario but they never forced her to participate in the activity. There's not very many people that do this kind of stuff. If you go into Canada, there's much more people, First Nations people that do this, but down here, there's just not. And my parents were the type of people who always had time. They took the time, if we came to them and had a question or you know, whatever it was, and I feel that I was lucky to have people like that in my life. Trapping for Mary Ottertail and the Link Letters was a way of life. It was essential for their survival during the long winters of the North, and for economic reasons. For Laura Powell, trapping was something she grew up with, embraced, celebrated, and ultimately gets to share with her community. The hats, gloves, and other items she makes from fur are natural treasures from the forests of her childhood, she explains though she's also aware these gifts are not for everyone. This is what people don't understand. They say, okay, well, they've got these campaigns, trapping is bad, trapping is cruel. 
On the other hand, you have people like First Nations peoples throughout Canada. If trapping was no longer a thing that they couldn't do, not only their their livelihood and their culture would be gone, but to some people, that's their job. That's what they do. And people don't understand that. I really try very hard to work with stuff that isn't farmed because it's just not right. As somebody that grew up on the trap line, it's just not right. And that is cruel. So I can sit here and tell you, I love animals. Clearly you can see that. But I also utilize them the way that they were meant to be. We, the moose to the Ojibwe people is what the buffalo is to the Lakota people. Animals were here before us. They didn't need us, but we need them. And so people say, well, it's 2023. You could be using fake fur. Well, yeah, I could, but then I would be a fraud because I will not wear fake fur. Back in the basement of her home in Grand Marais, Laura explains that these days she gets most of her fur from a fur dealer in Hovland, another small community on Minnesota's rugged north shore. Other furs come in from a tannery in Maine. Laura says there's not much profit for local trappers like herself in Cook County and near the Boundary Waters these days, but it's still something she enjoys. If she could, she'd spend her time in the woods living a quiet life, one very similar to that of her great-grandmother, Mary Ottertail. I have felt her here um, in ways that surprise me. I'd be doing something, measuring something here, and all of a sudden I just feel something here. A lot of times I don't know what it is or who it is, but sometimes I do, and I I felt her down here. I feel like she was a strong person that did a lot of things that, and went through a lot of things that people just don't understand, you know? That was a harder life back then, and they relied on everything they had. You could not be of a weak character and survive, you know? Mm -hmm. Family's always been a big thing for me, and. My family, the people that came before me, are the reasons that I'm here doing this. Support for Miniculture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Miniculture Podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening. <laughs>